Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. We're well underway in our sexual purity series called Do You Not Know? Our next message is called Your Body is Sacred. The Apostle Paul was addressing a tough crowd that was steeped into immorality and it was going on in the church. He challenged them with some important questions that lead them to seeing their bodies as set apart for the gospel. We hope you'll stay tuned. Here's John with Your Body is Sacred, Part 1. All right, you can take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Today we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. And let me just give you a quick review. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, the Apostle Paul asked the Corinthians four questions. Each of these questions begins like this. Do you not know? And each of Paul's questions functions as a rebuke. These are things that Christians ought to know. So he's rebuking them in a spirit of exasperation. The problem with the Corinthians is that they didn't know the gospel and its implications for their lives in regard to sexual immorality. And so what Paul is doing in this passage is he is reintroducing the Corinthians to the gospel and its implications which alone has the power to motivate them to keep the seventh commandment. And Paul tells us, he breaks down for us in this passage what the seventh commandment requires. You shall not commit adultery. And he tells us in verse 18 and verse 20 both what the seventh commandment forbids and what the seventh commandment requires. In verse 18, he tells them, he says, flee sexual immorality. That is what the seventh commandment forbids. It forbids sexual immorality, all forms of it, both in marriage and outside of marriage. And then the seventh commandment not only forbids abstinence from the seventh commandment, but it is also requiring something more of believers. Because when you read the Ten Commandments, always read it like this. It is giving you an illustration not only of what the God forbids, but it is actually telling you the flip side of what he actually requires you to pursue and do. And so in verse 20, the flip side of the seventh commandment, Paul says, is to glorify God in your body. That is, you are to be daily, actively pursuing growth in chastity, purity, and disciplined life, both inside and outside of marriage. And so in response to these Corinthians' unrestrained sexual license, Paul is teaching believers how to obey the law in this passage. He's teaching us what the law forbids, all forms of sexual immorality, and he's teaching us what the law requires, that is glorifying God by pursuing purity and pursuing a disciplined life both inside and outside of marriage. That's the context. Now, he begins in verses 9 through 11, as we've seen, by taking up the theme of the kingdom of God, and he applies it to the problem of sexual immorality in the church. He says, do you not know the unrighteous, the serially unrighteous, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But this whole thing is controlled by what does it look like to be in the kingdom of God? This is kingdom talk. This is kingdom language. This is what it looks like to be indwelt, to be indwelt with the living presence of the Holy Spirit 
granted us through the gospel because Paul says our bodies are literally the temple of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. What does the church look like that is living by the centrality of the gospel, led and indwelled by the living, active, real presence of the Holy Spirit? It looks like this. It keeps the seventh commandment. That's what it looks like. And Paul says that you are now in the kingdom of God, so you need to begin to look like it. And how do you begin to look like it? He's going to tell us in verses 12 to 20. First of all, you want to look like a kingdom citizen in the church. He says then, understand, verses 12 to 14, your body, your physical body belongs to Christ because they are destined for resurrection. And I asked you a question last week and said, Did any, has anybody in this church ever in their whole life been taught the doctrine of resurrection and its implications for sexual purity on a day-to-day basis and not a single hand went up? Do you think the Apostle Paul understands? Do you not know? We don't know the gospel and its implications for our lives. And so we learned this last week that the resurrection validates the moral importance of the physical body. A Christian is not free to engage in unrestrained sexual license. All things are lawful for me. Food is for the stomach. Stomach is for the food. Those Corinthian slogans used to justify immoral behavior. Paul says, no, that, that's not how it works in God's kingdom. It's not how the gospel through the power and dwelling power of the Holy Spirit works in the kingdom of God. Calvin says that it is a base thing to prostitute our bodies to earthly pollutions while it is destined to be a partaker along with Christ of a blessed immortality and of the heavenly glory. Those two don't go together. And so the resurrection empowers the believer, the gospel empowers the believer through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit because the gospel is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.8, to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God. Verses 18 and 20, you keep the law. Now, having appealed to the doctrine of resurrection, having appealed to the theme of the kingdom of God, Paul now does a third thing to help motivate believers to pursue sexual purity, to keep the seventh commandment. And what does he do? This is verses 15 to 17. In response to the Corinthians who were justifying their sexual and moral behavior with their slogans, Paul asked in verses 15 to 17, which is a rebuke, Corinthians and Paramount Church, do you not know that your bodies belong to Christ because they are in union with him? Paul has appealed to, listen, the doctrine of regeneration, to the doctrine of adoption. You have inherited the kingdom. He has appealed to the doctrine of justification. He has appealed to the doctrine of definitive sanctification, which is election. He has appealed to the doctrine of resurrection, and now he is appealing to the doctrine of union with Christ as that which motivates the believer to pursue sexual purity and keep the seventh commandment. Do you see this mountain of gospel beginning to grow week after week now? Listen to what he says in verses 15 to 17. Read with me. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members? Now, here's the implication of the gospel. Shall I then take the members of Christ, that is Christ's body, 
and unite his body with a prostitute. Never, God forbid, do you not know, he says it again, do you not know, what do you not know? That he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her and her body. And then he appeals to Genesis 2.24 and quotes the Old Testament as authoritative, inspired scripture to uphold and establish and ground the theology he's teaching. And he quotes Genesis 2.24 and he says, the two will become one flesh. And then he concludes verse 17. He wraps up the whole argument. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now, before we look at Paul's argument, let me give you the context of what Paul is talking about so that you understand his argument. The context is very simple. The problem that Paul is addressing is, that, is this, is that some of the Corinthian men in the church were visiting temple prostitutes in Corinth. Now, admittedly, temple prostitution seems rather extraordinary to many of us today. But it's helpful to understand, though it's not a justification, but it helps you to understand the the context of what Paul is dealing with in this church, that temple prostitution was rampant in first century Corinth, rampant. Sexual immorality in, in the form of temple prostitution was so widespread in ancient Corinth that it was generally looked at in the culture as a, quote, lawful act. That's why in verse 12, the Corinthian men, some of them were still repeating the slogan, all things are lawful for me. Listen to what one Bible scholar says about prostitution in first century Corinth. He says, prostitution, this is temple prostitution, where you go to Acre Corinth in a temple and you engage with a union with a woman as an act of worship, pagan worship. Prostitution was not only legal, but it was a widely accepted social convention. The sexual latitude allowed to men by Greek public opinion was virtually unrestricted. Unrestrained license in Corinth had invaded from the culture. All things are lawful for me, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, the church mirroring the culture that it lived in. Sexual relations of males with boys and harlots were generally tolerated. Thus, the Corinthian men who frequented prostitutes were not asserting some unheard of new freedom. They were, listen, they were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in pleasurable activity that was entirely normal within their culture. John Calvin says it is probable that the Corinthians, even up to that time, retained much of their former licentiousness and had still a savor of the morals of their city. That is the problem with people in the church today. They still have a savor for the morals of their culture. And Paul is saying that the culture of Corinth, rather than the gospel and its implications for the kingdom of God, had gripped some of these men in the church, and they still had not, listen, been perfectly sanctified in this area of their life, and the gospel had to come sit here so that they could know what the gospel was and its implications for their life. Do you not know, he says. 
the ethical standards of Corinth rather than the gospel drove the motivation behind the Corinthians' behavior, their illicit sexual immorality. Now, this fact raises a very important issue that you've got to understand in regard to sanctification. I was talking with Jason Shields this weekend, and we were talking about the process of sanctification as being painfully slow and sometimes nearly imperceptible. You ever felt like that in your life? Jason said, you know what I teach our people? He says, it takes time for the gospel to peel back layer after layer of sin in our lives, and it does. The gospel may be sitting central in your life for this particular sin, but for somebody else, they don't know it yet, and it has, its implications has not infiltrated their life through the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, Paul says, do you not know? Now, even though we do not have a problem with temple prostitution, the first century culture of Corinth does not differ all that much from ours. Men and women in our culture and in the UK and in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and South Africa and Cape Town or wherever you are from frequently visit the temples of sexual immorality in our culture through the internet, cable TV, magazines, books at borders, At Books a Million, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is called mommy porn, so women, you're not off the hook on this sin. Smartphones, tablets, and on and on it goes in our culture. Sexual immorality may not be as widely acceptable social convention in in terms of its widespread expression of temple prostitution in our culture like it was in Corinth, but it is nonetheless just as acceptable accessible and rampant in our culture as it was in the first century culture of Corinth, perhaps more so because of the digital age in which we live. The rise of new communication technologies has provided greater, quote, perceived privacy and ease of access without the limiting factors of an inhibiting social stigma. What do I mean by that? This. The red light district has discreetly made its way into the inner sanctums of our homes and lives. The proliferation of new communication technology has radically increased the prevalence and accessibility of pornography in our day, and now the red light district is no longer driving across town. It is a click away 24-7-365. So, how does the Apostle Paul seek to confront the problem of sexual immorality in the Corinthian church, and how does his strategy apply to us in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, Jacksonville, Ponte Vedra, Neptune Beach, Atlantic Beach, how does it apply to us 20-something centuries later? I'm going to show you this morning. And the way that he does it, this is his strategy. Paul confronts and he corrects the Corinthians' attempt to justify, as evidenced by their slogans, sexual and moral behavior, unrestrained sexual license. He does it by appealing to the doctrine of union with Christ. And that's in verses 15 to 17. Now look at verse 15 and look how Paul begins. He begins with this rebuking question. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? In In verse 13, Paul says that the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. 
He takes that phrase in verse 13, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and he expounds on it in verses 15 to 17. And he tells you that the believer's body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the believer's body, not only because it's destined for resurrection, verses 12 to 14, but also because your physical body, not just your soul spirit, is intimately united to Christ's body himself. Now look at this word members that he uses in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The word members, melos in the Greek, was a term used to speak of the physical parts of the body. All the physical parts of the human body. Now listen carefully. How do you come into union with Jesus? Through the gospel and the gift of faith, the Holy Spirit takes those and unites us soul and body to Jesus himself. The Heidelberg Catechism begins in question one with this statement. I am not my own, but I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Your body and your soul is not yours It is Christ's, and you are united to him. You are a member of him. You belong to him, and the Holy Spirit is the bond of this union. The Holy Spirit works the gift of faith into our hearts through the preaching of the gospel over and over again, and through this gift, builds up this faith and legally and vitally unites us to Jesus the glorious risen Son of God. Jerry Bridges talks about our legal and vital union with Jesus Christ. He says our legal union with Christ, now get this, entitles us to all that Christ did for us. I'm going to work these implications out. I just want you to hear this. Our union, our legal union with Christ entitles us to all that Christ did for us as he acted in our place as our substitute. Our vital union with Christ is the means by which he works in us by the Holy Spirit. The legal union, the legal union refers to his objective work outside of us that is credited to us through faith. Our legal union refers to the gospel what Christ has done in his life, death, burial, and resurrection for us. It is outside of us, and we are united to all of that and is counted to us as if we did it ourselves. And then listen, our vital union refers to his subjective work in us, which is also realized through faith as we rely on his Holy Spirit to work in and through us. Now, the Apostle Paul addresses both aspects of our union with Christ in this passage. In verses 15 to 17, Paul is addressing our legal union with Jesus Christ. I'm going to come back to that in just a second, and you're going to be astounded by what he's saying about this. In verses 18 to 20, we're going to look at our vital union with Jesus, whereby the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit comes to live in us and reign in us with his active energy presence because we are his temples and he indwells us. And that's verses 18 to 20, and that's the vital union. 
He takes all that Jesus has done for us, and by we being his temple, he indwells our physical bodies and takes all that Christ is and all that he has done and makes us eventually look just like that. Now, listen to Paul's reasoning from verses 12 to 14 to verses 15 to 17. It's very tightly connected. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful argument that he's building here. This is Paul's reasoning. Listen, verses 12 to 14. The body of the believer belongs to the Lord because of resurrection. That's verses 12 to 14. Verses 15 to 17, the body of the believer also belongs to the Lord by virtue of his legal union with Christ, verses 15 to 17. What Paul is saying is this, because your physical body is joined to Christ's body, God the Father has set into motion the reality of your resurrection, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. You're destined for resurrection. Because Jesus has been raised, you will be too, because you are legally united to him. Paul is simply saying this, because you are united to Christ, his resurrection is now your resurrection. His glorious destiny is your glorious destiny. You can say that what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross, you have accomplished You can say that when Jesus was buried, you were buried. You can say that when Jesus was raised from the dead, you have already been raised spiritually from the dead, and you will one day, because of that first resurrection, be physically raised from the dead in the consummation of God's kingdom. Paul says all that Jesus is, all that he has done, you are and you have done because of your legal union with him. That's how closely united you are to Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, and he comes back to this body resurrection idea. He says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, here is where it comes to application for your deadly pursuit of sexual purity. Because of your legal union with Jesus, Paul asks the Corinthians, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. Meganoita, never, God forbid, exclamation point. He's shouting at this point. He's saying we are not our own, but we are joined both body and soul to Christ. His argument is very explicit, very explicit. He's suggesting an unthinkable reality. Totally unthinkable reality. What is he suggesting? He's arguing that when some of these Corinthian men visit the temple prostitutes in Corinth, they are taking Christ's body and joining it to that prostitute. That's unthinkable. It's a blasphemous prospect. He's saying that the believer's union with Christ is so closely united that the Scriptures teach that whatever is done to the believer is done to Jesus himself. Let me give you an example from Scripture. Listen to Acts chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, where Jesus appears to Saul, who he would convert to Paul on the Damascus Road. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Question. Who was Paul walking down the Damascus Road to go persecute? Christians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul, speaking of his prior life to, prior to his conversion, he says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. This man had a temper of all tempers. He was violent, he was a terrorist, he was a murderer, and he was filled with hate. His violent persecution of the church, Jesus says to him, was actually a violent persecution of Christ himself. Why? Because Jesus is so legally and vitally united to his people that when you violate and persecute his people, you're doing it to Jesus himself. Thanks, John. The message you just heard is called Your Body is Sacred, Part 1. More from the Do You Not Know series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. I'm Josh Montez. Thanks for listening and join us next time.